Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefeller. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Iran sits in the Middle East, a powder keg mixture of sun, sand, oil, gas, and religion, with the fuse perpetually burning low. Iran has a population of approximately 83 million, roughly equivalent to Turkey, double the population of Iraq, and almost three times the population of its rival, Saudi Arabia. Iran's labor force is approximately 28 million. It has a median population age of 32 years and a literacy rate of over 93%. Iran's history as the seat of the Persian Empire stretches back over 2,000 years. But in recent history, Iran's 1979 Islamic Revolution ended centuries of rule by monarchy and created a revolutionary theocracy that endures today. To say that Iran's security and economic relationship with the U.S. has been and continues to be complicated is a bit of an understatement. Today, we are joined by Miles Hansen, the president and CEO of World Trade Center Utah, an organization dedicated to promoting prosperity across the state by attracting investment and increasing exports. Before joining World Trade Center Utah, Hansen was the director for Gulf Affairs at the National Security Council in the White House. Before that, he served as a staff aide to the State Department's Assistant Secretary for Near Eastern Affairs. He also served diplomatic tours at the U.S. Consulate in Dharan, Saudi Arabia, at the U.S. Embassy in Yerevan, Armenia, and in the Iran Regional Presence Office at the U.S. Consulate General, Dubai. Before joining the State Department as a Thomas R. Pickering Fellow, Hansen started his career in Utah as a special assistant in the office of the Lieutenant Governor. He speaks Arabic, Persian, and Russian. Miles, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be on with you today. Miles, welcome to the podcast. Let's get things started by asking you how you chose your particular career path in international public service. You know, that's a great question, Fred. It's funny how life uh, kind of unfolds in unexpected ways sometimes. Uh, you know, I always was interested in international affairs, international things, but I, I wanted to focus on business. When I was in college, I signed up to do an internship in Europe, and I thought it'd be a business-focused internship. Um, went through the, the local or the, the college uh, internship office to arrange it. And one day I was walking home from campus, and I got a phone call, and I said, you know, we're having a hard time finding a good fit in Europe but we've got this job in Kyrgyzstan. Would you be interested? And I thought for a second, I said, yeah, that, Kyrgyzstan, that sounds interesting. Um, and so I agreed to do it. And as soon as I got home, I, I pulled out a map to try to figure out where in the heck Kyrgyzstan was on the map. But I ended up uh, going to Kyrgyzstan. Uh, previously, I lived in Russia for a couple of years. so spoke Russian, um, had a really fascinating experience in Kyrgyzstan, uh, hitchhiked across Tajikistan, which is just south of there. And that was my first real experience in a Muslim country, 
This was a couple years after 9-11, and what I experienced was very different than what I expected to experience. And so when I came back to campus, I decided to study Farsi. And uh, as Jonathan alluded to, there aren't too many international business opportunities in Iran as an American, uh, but lots of opportunities in national security and foreign policy. And so that was a pretty significant pivot point for me. Uh, I started focusing on, on Farsi and studying, uh, learning more about Iran, and that led me into a career in public service. Now, Miles, Utah is a modestly populated landlocked state. I know because I live here just like you do. How does it compare to other states in terms of international business activity? You know, Jonathan, one of the, one of the biggest surprises for a lot of people who don't live in Utah or haven't spent a lot of time in Utah is how international Utah is. First, from an economic perspective, you know, Utah has led the nation in terms of our export growth over the past couple of years. Uh, we punch way above our weight in terms of the percent of GDP that, that is derived from trade. Nearly one in four jobs in the state uh, is tied to international trade. And it, it, it is interesting. I had a conversation with, uh, with HSBC. They opened up an office in Denver, uh, but they find that they spend more time here in Utah of course, HSBC, one of the largest international financial institutions, uh, international transactions really is their bread and butter. And what they commented to me is that what they found is in Utah, uh, businesses are thinking about growing internationally far earlier than any other state within uh, the, the Intermountain West, which is where the, the Denver office focuses on. Um, that gets uh, that is a result of a couple different factors. One in Utah, uh, we have the highest rate of young people who have international experiences. And it's derived originally from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, has a very a robust missionary uh, program. That's how I ended up as an 18-year-old going and living in Russia for two years and learning Russian. Um, and so you have a lot of young people who are doing these international experiences, these missions early on. But as Utah has grown, uh, that has created a culture of, of people going and engaging with the world and now, as you find, as, as people graduate high school and jump into college, uh, what you find is whether or not they're doing a mission or Peace Corps or some sort of other service opportunity, uh, you see young people going out and, and, and having international experience early on in their life, which obviously is very uh, formative on them, on their career path, uh, develops language capabilities. And as they come back, no matter what they do, and in this case in business, they tend to be more focused on uh, growing their businesses internationally. A uh, couple quick stats, Utah speaks more languages uh, per capita than anywhere else in the country. We speak 130 languages every day here in the state of Utah. And uh, focusing on taking out one, uh, Mandarin, you know, here in Utah, we speak uh, or we teach 20% of the Mandarin immersion that is taught anywhere in the country is taught here in a state with less than 1% of the population. So we're a highly international uh, culture, society. You see that in the economy and in business. And that really is our comparative advantage, the thing that makes us different from every state around us. And my four oldest children missed the boat, uh, but my youngest, who uh, who is four turning five, doesn't know this yet, but he's going into a Mandarin immersion program as long as I can grease the right palms to get him in. And that's a big draw. You know, those of us who have international experiences, then we have an opportunity to bring that to bear uh, on our children earlier. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know any person who speaks a foreign language who doesn't feel that that has made them a, a more well-rounded person and a, a better global citizen. Yep, that's exactly right. You know, your, your four-year-old uh, will be one of 14,000 
uh, students here, you know, K through 12, that are going to school full time in Mandarin. And there are similar programs in Spanish. Um, I think they're working on Arabic to get that set up. Um, and uh, I've heard Russian as well on a smaller scale. Miles, turning to Iran, uh, this is a country that has certainly been making uh, front page news for, for quite some time. I mean, I can, I can uh, hark back to, to my childhood, and I still remember uh, listening, uh, he- hearing on the news about the the uh, Iranian airliner that was um, shut down over the Gulf, um, and 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 just in general, it's it's just been a, a, a constant presence. Um, at, at the same time, you know, within when you have this this forest, so to speak, of of developments, uh, it's sometimes easy to to lose sight of the of the trees and 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 what's actually happening and and understanding what's happening there. In a in a more more structured way. So, for 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 the interest of, of those of us who who don't follow Iranian uh, or, or Middle Eastern affairs that closely, could you perhaps give us a general timeline of significant developments in Iran over, let's say, the last decade? Yeah, Fred, that's a, that's a great question, and, and uh, happy to do that. You know. It, Iran has been a thorn in the side of the United States uh, since 1979, going on more than 40 years. Iran is a, a country that uh, here in the United States that is, uh, has become this, this, this perception that's the perpetual enemy, the adversary, the country that is uh, fomenting unrest uh, across the Middle East, repressing its own people, uh, constantly uh, you know, spurring protests within the country or, or, or marches denouncing the United States as the great Satan. Marikbar uh, Amrika, uh, which means death to America, is another favorite uh, slogan. And so this has been uh, imprinted in the minds of, I think, every American. And that's what they view Iran as. Um, I think it's important to take a step back and remember that before 1979, uh, Iran was a very close ally of the United States. It was much more open than it is today. The economy was developing. Um, it had its challenges, and no questions about that, but it wasn't this bastion of anti-American uh, sentiment that we've seen over the past four decades. Iran is a, is a rich, uh, uh, very rich country endowed with great natural resources, but probably more importantly, great human capital, human resources. Iranians are, are by and large, a highly value, hard work industry. They're very innovative. Uh, they're smart. They're witty. They're funny. They have a culture and a society, a civilization that literally goes back thousands of years. Um, Iran has not launched a war of, uh, of territorial conquest um, for, for centuries. Um, and so it's, it's, been this, it's got its long history in this culture uh, and its heritage is very rich. They've added so much to, to humanity throughout the centuries. Um, a lot of what we know about the ancient Greeks was preserved thanks to, through a bit of a chain of events, through the Iranians and, and, and Iranian scholars. Um, and so they've made this great contribution on humanity for centuries. And yet that contrasts significantly with what we've seen over the past four decades. Um, I think it's important to note, you know, why did things turn this direction? The Shah of Iran throughout the 1960s and 1970s was increasingly repressive. He had a vision for the future of the country. And if you didn't agree with that vision, then it, you would find yourself um, 
in, in pretty tough circumstances. Uh, they had a, a very repressive secret police, uh, you know, arrests, torture, uh, suppressing political dissent was something that was commonplace and, and contributed to a growing sentiment within Iran that the Shah was not looking out for the interests of the Iranian people, but he was looking out for his own interests as he lived a, a very a luxurious life um, with, a, with capturing an, an inordinate amount of the wealth that was being created from, at that point, primarily Iran's oil exports. Um, that led to a strong public backlash, a popular uprising against the Shah. That was, you know, every segment of society was participating in, both liberal Democrats, communists, and also religious leaders who were stoking an Islamic fundamentalism uh, that ultimately, uh, over the course of two or three years of revolution, they were the ones that were able to, uh, to take control, to purge out the liberal Democrats, the communists, other uh, parts of society. And that really is uh, their, their identity was tied into uh, pushing back against foreign influence of which there was a lot in the 1960s and 70s coming from the United States. And so that was really the birth of this anti-American sentiment in Iran. Um, but I, I, I call, I, I think it's important to highlight this because it, it was a relatively recent development if you look back across all of Iranian history. So let's fast forward to the past decade. Iran has seen this revolutionary fervor uh, sustain itself in ways that, that, that a lot of people uh, find surprising. In the late 1990s, uh, there began to be some openings, some reforms. Uh, students began, began agitating for more uh, freedoms, more ability to, to, to live they want the, the way they want to live um, and not necessarily have to follow all the dictates of uh, both from a political perspective but also a religious perspective that was coming from the Iranian regime. Um, those uh, protests were, were suppressed. And the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, is the, the, the action arm of the Iranian regime, and they were effective in suppressing that. Fast forward 10 years, 2009, there's a presidential election, which they do have uh, elections in Iran that are contested. They do have debates. Um, and uh, again, a, you know, there was a blatant stealing of the election. The fact that the people were upset about that and began to protest it underscores how these elections were viewed as being legitimate up to this point. Um, the regime stole the election and made sure that Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the current president, won. Um, and there was very large spread uh, protests against the, uh, the uh, protesting the, the results of the election. Again, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, they suppressed those, um, lock up the leaders. They're still under house arrest now, 11 years later, and were, again, very effective in suppressing this strong popular sentiment towards more freedom, more openness, more engagement with the rest of the world. Um, and now we've seen over the past couple of years, uh, increasing political dissent within the country. And it's interesting, just last fall, we had widespread protests uh, where they were for the first time, very, the protests were getting fairly violent and taking extreme action against the government. They burned uh, over a hundred banks in the country, destroyed other public buildings. Uh, but again, the IRGC, the Iranian regime, was very effective at shutting down the internet across the country and, and, and beating the people back into the street. Um, there's no way of knowing how many people were killed, some estimates, but well over a thousand. Um, and so you see this regime that is very effective at maintaining its hold on power, while at the same time, uh, there's consistent uh, desire from the Iranian people 
to to have a change, to moderate. They don't want to have a revolution that now has been ongoing for 40 years. Um, they want a, a thermidor is the, the term that they use in France for the French, revolu- French revolutions where they had successive revolutions. And, and that was a term that denoted when the revolution ended and life got back to normal. And that's what the Iranian people want. But unfortunately, there's an Iranian regime in place that is very effective at controlling all the elements of political, economic, and military power. And they wield those, uh, those tools very effectively. Uh, so do you see that changing at all miles in the next decade or two? You know, I think it's, it's going to be fascinating to see. Um, the protests that we saw in November were far more widespread and violent and focused on the regime itself, demanding a, a change of, of, of the regime than anything we'd seen previously. Um, I think that there is no question that uh, the Iran's economy is in shambles. Uh, regular people are having a really hard time making a decent living. Um, you look at COVID and the COVID response in Iran has been uh, really bad with a lot of people dying. And it's just yet the latest example of both the lack of accountability that the Iranian government, that the Iranian people have over their government and also the ineffectiveness of the Iranian government to deliver a a peaceful, prosperous life for uh, the people. Um, And so that makes me think that that things are nearing a tipping point. But at the same time, uh, we've seen this cycle of protests and suppression a couple different times without the protests really affecting any meaningful change whatsoever. And so I, I think that it's just going to be fascinating to see how it plays out and to see if on this iteration of the protest cycle, if the protesters and the Iranian people are able to affect more change uh, or if the, the regime is going to be really effective at stamping it down. The one thing I'll note, Jonathan, is that uh, the Iranian supreme leader uh, is, is, is aging, um, you know, is at a certain point over the next, uh, and nobody knows for sure, but let's call it a decade. He's going to pass away. And there's a lot of questions about who the next Supreme Leader is going to be. And that then I think will create an opportunity where you have all these different factions, even within the regime. Um, that transition of power will be a period that will be difficult for the regime to manage. If at the same time, there is this heightened uh, dissatisfaction among the people and a willingness among the people to take pretty extreme risks to try to demand change. And I think those of us who are China watchers like Fred and I are uh, certainly look at what's happening in Iran and wonder, uh, you know, is that what, where China will be in 10 or 20 years? Uh, you know, it seems like the same strong arm politicians uh, who control all of the technology in the, war, in the country. Uh, they can certainly uh, wield a great amount of power and use that to cement their rule for, for decades. So very interesting uh, I mean, it's sad, of course, but it's also just an interesting academic exercise to compare revolution, uh, revolutionary fervor in, in one country versus another. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic point, and it is fascinating to think through. I'm not a China expert, but I think one really interesting distinction between the two is that in Iran, when the revolution came in, uh, the, Iran's got a constitution. Like I mentioned, they have a parliament. Those parliament uh, that includes representation from you know all aspects of Iranian society. 
There are Jewish members of the Iranian parliament. There are Christian members of the uh, Iranian parliament, uh, Shia and Sunni as well. They are popularly they are popularly elected through what are typically you know pretty much free and fair elections. The same is true of the president. Uh, they've got a judicial system, and so you have these liberal democratic institutions that are pl- in place in Iran. And yet, on top of that, in the revolution, they layered this uh, these uh, institutions that are designed to keep those democratic institutions in check and in place. So like I mentioned, they have elections and, and you can go and you can vote for your candidate to be in the parliament, but only but there is a, a, a governing body that vets candidates. And so you have to be pre-approved to be a candidate. And in the, there were uh, elections in February, and a significant percentage of the existing parliament, uh, so incumbents, were disqualified by this institution that's in place to, to vet and make sure that only those candidates that have sufficiently uh, appropriate revolutionary credentials are allowed to run. And just like the, the presidential elections, the same thing, where you have candidates who you have debates, they're on TV and they're debating their issues. And uh, aside from the 2009 election, you know, they generally, once a candidate was vetted and approved to be in the race, you know, people voted and, and people perceived those elections to be free and fair. Um, but of course, the government's the one that gets to control which candidates can run. And then as was the case in 2009, if, if the wrong candidate wins, then they, they, they tip the scales back the other direction. So you have this, this system in place where you actually wouldn't need to make uh, very significant changes to the Iranian constitution to make it so it was a, a, a liberal democracy. And, uh, and you could still have a supreme leader, but it, you could make like a constitutional monarchy where you could have a religious leader who plays a similar role that the Queen of England plays. And yet you have these, this history and these institutions of democracy in the country um, which I find very fascinating. And I contrast that with China, where in China you have, and Jonathan and Fred, you know better than I do, but a unified structure that is a, controlled by the party, but you don't have these liberal democratic institutions that are then under the nose and under the control of the party. You just have a party apparatus and a state apparatus that is very much uh, synced up and a part of the party, the CCP, and which... which which gives me some hope for Iran that uh, if there can be a change made, it wouldn't be a, a wholesale throw out what they have and, and, and create something new. It would be tweaking what they have to make it so it functions uh, appropriately and that there is true accountability and that these democratic institutions that are in place are able to, to operate like they do in any country and, and not with the oversight of the religious leadership and these other revolutionary institutions that are uh, controlling and manipulating uh, the democratic wants to their advantage. Interesting. No, I think that's a fair characterization of the way uh, China's government is run at this time. So let's switch gears then. Um, I'd like to learn more about how uh, Iran and its relationship with Saudi Arabia, how that perpetual blood feud uh, affects the Middle Eastern uh, dynamics, and then just also how how is Iran perceived by uh, by its other neighbors in the Middle East and, and uh, neighboring countries in Asia as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Iran, one thing for, for, for people who aren't as familiar with the Middle East or Iran, uh, I always tell people that Iran is like the Germany of the Middle East. And think of Germany through the Franco-Prussian Wars, World War I, and World War II. 
Germany had the ability to unilaterally destabilize the continent, right, and, and, and wreak uh, death and destruction in, in a really significant way uh, throughout Europe. And yet, Germany in, since the 1990s has played such a strong, positive, stabilizing force throughout Europe. And Germany is, is uh, from an economic perspective, from a political perspective, from a social perspective, is, is playing this very strong, unifying role across Europe, which then feeds into success and prosperity across the continent. And I think Iran is, is very similar. Iran, uh, clearly for the past 40 years, has been playing a very destabilizing role in the region as it works to try to expand its influence and, and, and be the, the, the predominant power within the region. And that has long, uh, far-reaching consequences in Syria, in Lebanon, in Israel, in Palestine, in, in Gaza, in the West Bank, um, in Saudi Arabia, elsewhere in the Gulf, in Yemen, certainly. The, the terrible civil war that's been raging there uh, would not be the, the humanitarian catastrophe that it is without Iran very actively fomenting and destabilizing that country and using that as a base of operations to attack Saudi Arabia and, and to a lesser extent, extent the United Arab Emirates. And so Iran right now is playing that destabilizing role. So I think that the heart of your question is why? After the revolution, before the revolution, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia enjoyed uh, good relationships. The, there are videos online of the current king of Saudi Arabia doing a celebratory dance, uh, kind of a traditional dance uh, in Iran on a visit there. When I lived in the eastern uh, part of Saudi Arabia and worked there, you know, I'd be with these uh, very senior uh, Saudi business leaders and they would talk about in the 60s and 70s when they would take road trips to Iran. They drive up through Kuwait and go into Iran, and, and some of them have family uh, relationships there. Um, and so you have these, these strong relationships, and that hasn't always been the case, but that's been, uh, by and large, you've seen good, strong relationships between Iran and its neighbors, including Saudi Arabia. After the revolution and, and during the revolution, um, Iraq, uh, Iran's neighbor to the west, Saddam Hussein was in charge. Uh, he saw an, uh, an opportunity to seize oil fields and natural resources and territory from Iran. He launched a war into Iran uh, just a, 18 months or so into the revolution, or yeah, into the, the revolution where you have a, a new government. Um, the part of Iran that he hoped to take is ethnically Arab. Um, it is where the oil industry is focused in Iran. And so he saw that as, as an opportunity and, and took advantage of it. He initially made some significant gains. The Iranian people rallied. Uh, they pushed uh, Iraq out of Iran and then it ended up going in and invading Iraq to try to take territory and inflict punishment on Iraq for, for invading Iran. And it was a disastrous war, eight years long, uh, terrible death and destruction on both sides, um, really horrendous things happening, missiles raining down on Iranian cities uh, with chemical weapons. And in that period of time, Iran was was looking to export its revolution. They viewed it as, as an, an Islamic awakening. They hoped that and believed that their, the, the Shia sect of Islam that they practiced predominantly in Iran, that the leaders were there in Iran, that, they, that if they invaded, uh, that they had an opportunity to, to push back and, and foment a similar Islamic revolution in Iraq, in Syria, in Saudi Arabia, and elsewhere in the region which, of course, all the other countries in the region, they weren't happy about that. And so they all were supporting Saddam Hussein in Iraq as Iraq inflicted significant damage and death and destruction on Iran. And so that's the, the, the rivalry that we've seen since then 
really stems from the 1980s and during this period of time. Uh, since then, they view the Saudi government as not being legitimate overseers of the heart of Islam, Mecca, and Medina. Um, and so they are constantly working to undermine and delegitimize the Saudi government. Of course, the Saudi government uh, doesn't like that. And so they have uh, sought ways and opportunities to push back on Iranian influence uh, elsewhere in the region. Um, and over the past year, year and a half or so, we've seen these tensions increase significantly. I mentioned Yemen. Uh, there are a civil war in Yemen and uh, the Yemeni uh, rebels, we'll call them the Houthis, are, a, are, are aligned with Iran. And Iran has been uh, sending in ballistic missiles, other weapons that the Houthis are using to, to uh, fire on civilian and military targets in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we all saw on the news last year where uh, Iran launched cruise missiles and in a very uh, aggressive manner attacked the Saudi oil uh, infrastructure. And so you, as long as Iran remains this revolutionary, uh, religiously controlled government, uh, part of their, their, their core ideology is that the other governments in the region are not legitimate, uh, that they should be working to expand and export the revolution, and therefore they can't have peaceful, normal relationships with them because uh, they are actively working to destabilize and, and, and in, in so doing expand their influence in the region. Turn now to China. Uh, why is Iran's interaction with China significant? Uh, and, and what are some of the manifestations of that close working relationship between Iran and China that should be of, of concern uh, to other countries? I uh, Last month, I remember reading about how China was, uh, to, to some degree or another, uh, helping Iran supply Venezuela with 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 oil. Um, for perhaps you could talk about that um, specific episode uh, and or more broadly how the cooperation between these two repressive regimes could have um, broader consequences on on world security. So, Fred, fascinating question. What we've seen over the past uh, few months and really the past several years is as there is a, a united front to try to put pressure, economic pressure on Iran uh, to limit its ability to foment uh, these, uh, this unrest uh, across the Middle East and also to put pressure on it for its nuclear program, uh, you see Europe um, hesitantly sometimes, but, but more often not going along with the United States, uh, Canada and others on putting economic pressure on Iran. Uh, Russia has been uh, playing both sides, as has China. And what we've seen over the past few years is as the United States has increased uh, economic sanctions on Iran and reduced its ability to export its oil, thereby deriving revenue that it can use to, internally, um, China has been a, it may continue to be a willing buyer of Iranian oil. And so that China is able to, to one, get the oil, and two, help make sure that Iran is not completely starved of the ability to generate revenue. Um, China clearly uh, is, is in a period of increased tension with the United States. Um, as the old adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I think there's some of that going on here where, where China uh, recognizes from a nuclear perspective that that's uh, a, a new nuclear power, Iran with nuclear weapons, uh, may not be a good thing. 
Um, it's probably not the worst thing for China either. If you look at what Iran is doing in Iraq and Syria, uh, in Saudi Arabia and Yemen and elsewhere, uh, there's a lot of human uh, cost to that, a lot of tragedy. Um, China's not as concerned about that. And they're also not directly threatened in any way by that. And so they don't have too much to lose by, uh, by allowing Iran to continue to have an outlet and opportunity to sell its oil. And at the same time, uh, the extent to which uh, containing Iran takes up time and energy and resources and attention from the United States and, and others, that then is, is time and energy and resources that, that aren't going towards uh, addressing some of the concerning behavior that the United States has seen from China recently. And so you see China um, wanting, a, a likely wanting to see more focus on Iran, at the same time not experiencing the costs of doing so, and then they're able to get oil at a very significant discount um, over market rates because they're buying it uh, in some ways under the table from Iran. In terms of Venezuela specifically, uh, this is another area where you have a government that is uh, under a lot of pressure from the United States and our partners and allies, a lot of concerns with the Venezuelan government, um, Venezuela and Iran, and also China have been friends for a long time. And so we've seen Iran sending oil and food and, and other resources to Venezuela uh, with some uh, participation from China as well as they work to try to help prop up the, uh, the Maduro government in Venezuela. Miles, you talked earlier about the Iranian people, and uh, I'm a people person. I like to know the backstory behind the headlines and would love to hear a little bit about maybe some of the Iranians who you have met, who you've interacted with, who you've read about, uh, to give everyone a feel, because I think you're completely accurate, even those of us who consider ourselves very uh, international in the United States. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not quite 40 years old yet, and so this has been my reality for my whole life. Uh, knowing Iran as the as the boogeyman of the Middle East, so perhaps you can you can help us uh, heal a little bit of that intellectual and emotional disconnect. Yeah, the, the Iranian people are absolutely phenomenal. I've spent a lot of time working with Iranians, um, working on Iran issues. Have a lot of uh, very very close friends that are uh, Iranian, and I've, I've traveled all over the country. And, and I'll tell you, Jonathan, I, I traveled there uh, when I was still a student, I was studying Farsi. My wife and I. Uh, were able to get visas and, and able to, to go and arrange a tour. And I have never, in the 80 or so countries I've been in, I've never been somewhere where I felt uh, more at home, more welcome, and just surrounded by people who, are, uh, who, who seemed desperate to make sure that we didn't leave in any interaction uh, without knowing that, that we were deeply valued and respected uh, not just as, as, as Americans, but as individuals and people. Um, you know, you, one quick story is we were in uh, the city of, uh, where were we? We were in Yazd, Iran, and this was in January of 2009. So we actually watched uh, Barack Obama's uh, inauguration uh, from Tehran in our, our, our hotel. Um, and at the same time, there was a war going on in Gaza and between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, and some, uh, I think the a thousand uh, Palestinians or so had been killed, and, and eight or nine or ten Israelis were killed. And so there was really heightened passions in Iran, uh, and a lot of concern about this. And so there were there were a lot of protests. And I remember we were having lunch one day, and uh, you could hear kind of echoing down this little alley, alley the Marbar America, the Death to America um, chants. 
And, and my wife said, well, we got to go check this out. I said, I don't know if that's a great idea, but, but she wanted to go check it out. So I, I followed her lead and we went out there in a street full of people, you know, hundreds of people. Um, and at first you, you stand there and you, you hear all these people talking about, you know, death to America and calling us the great Satan and uh, holding up these signs with the Statue of Liberty with a, a skull uh, for a face. And as an American, you know, that that is uh, grating, uh, to say the least. And at first I felt a little bit agitated. So I'm already standing on a corner. Uh, I don't blend in at all. My wife blends in perfectly so she can walk around and nobody notices that she's not from Iran. Uh, I'm pretty obviously not from Iran. So I stood there on the corner and I was kind of staring people down as they walked by. And after a couple of minutes, I, I realized that there was no passion in the protest. And every time I locked eyes on somebody, uh, their eyes would drop, they look away, and there's the, the sense of embarrassment on their faces. Um, and so I, I loosened up after a few minutes and kind of walking around, there was a group of kids or teenagers uh, on, the, on the margins of it. And so I walked up to him, we started talking and I said, hey, do you know something kind of funny? And like, what? I said, I'm from America. And they instantly got the irony that here they are talking to an American in the, in the middle of a death to America uh, protest. And they laughed and said, don't pay attention to any of this. They said, in America, you guys play sports. Here in Iran, we protest. And then they went on to explain that, you know, on Fridays, if you have a job that's tied to the government, uh, you, you have to go to mosque and you have to go to prayers. And on the way home from prayers, you have to join in the protest. And so the vast majority of people there, uh, just as I experienced, were doing it not out of a deep hatred to Americans or the United States, uh, but they're doing it because that's what they have to do to, to keep their heads down and to, to maintain a, a job that's anything tied to the government. And, and, and most things there are tied to the government. Um, and so by and large, we had a phenomenal experience, you know, waiting in lines. If anybody found out we were from America, instantly escorted the front of the line. Uh, people at wanting to talk to us, even Revolutionary Guard security guys in the airport wanted to talk to us. And everybody wanted to make sure that we knew that they didn't hate us because we were Americans and that we shouldn't buy into the propaganda and, and what we see on the surface. That's not to say that there aren't true believers. It's not to say that there aren't a lot of Iranians that, that are fully embedded in, in the government, that they are benefiting from it uh, socially, economically, politically, and that that's not a, a worldview that they maintain. But that's, a, in my experience, was that was a, a pretty significant minority, and that the people there were, were overwhelmingly uh, just wonderful to be with. And so that's, that makes, it, it makes the situation more of a tragedy, in my mind, that you have such wonderful people with great human capital and so much to contribute, and yet they're caught in the system that is, is not only bad for other countries in the region and bad for the United States, but the people who suffer the most are the, the wonderful Iranian people that have to live in that society and under a system that is so uh, repressive and is uh, so poorly delivering positive outcomes for the people. Miles, this is the part where we ask you, what have you been reading or listening to or watching that would be of interest to to our audience. Uh, feel free to be creative. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and one of my goals uh, recently is to read more and to watch more, to do more than just uh, learn about the things I need to learn about for work. Uh, but they, this is not creative at all. But for anybody who's not uh, checking in with the Economist, either subscribing and reading the print edition online. Or just even you know going to the website and reading the free articles online, the Economist, in my mind, is the best ability to maintain general knowledge about what's happening in the world. 
uh, with its bent, of course, towards business in, in the economy. I was actually a junior uh, in college studying abroad when my then roommate introduced me to the to the economist and it it, it was a an inflection point and there's there's really nothing like it i i think you're you're absolutely right you know after all these years i i still i, I completely agree if you if you want to have that that overview of of what is happening uh around the world there's there's just nothing nothing like it uh jonathan what about you what do you have for us this week a while ago i stumbled upon foreign policies i spy podcast and uh, i listen and read to read a lot of things so i haven't been able to delve into it as deeply as i would have liked to but uh, the episode i listened to was fascinating it's they take ex spies and they have them walk through a, a scenario or some situation they were in and what it's like to really be the spy in the room and uh, it, so it was a little bit of uh, you know a little bit of current events a little bit of history a little bit of thriller all mixed in. And so I highly recommend that. I, I plan on tuning in more. Um, Fred, what about you? Uh, along with The Economist, I have, also have to echo The Economist. It's uh, it's fun. I, I say I enjoy the political cartoons the most um, on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, and so certainly endorse that. Fred, what about you? What do you have to recommend for us today? Well, I have two recommendations, um, both uh, a little different than than uh, than what I, I usually recommend. The first, it, it, it just came to, to mind, but I realized it's actually a very useful resource um, for, for me, and, and it might be to others. So I'd just like to put this out there. If you're ever curious uh, about a particular country's diplomatic network and the kind of presence it has overseas or vice versa, if you want to uh, have a better idea of the, the the level of, of diplomatic representation in a particular country. Um, Wikipedia has really done a good job, or, or the contributors to Wikipedia, I should say, have done a really good job of of keeping track of this, uh, and they they organize it in a in a very clear way. You can you can usually look at it by by city, uh, and, and this I think is um, particularly useful. I mean, the U.S. has so many diplomatic missions where it's it's rare that a country does not have uh, a mission, but a U.S. mission. But other countries have to be a, much more judicious with their budgets, right? So it's really interesting to to see, you know, what the priorities are and how they use those more limited resources. I mean, obviously, countries like like China again have have very extensive networks but really interesting to look at at what some of the smaller countries uh, are doing and also to to see where some other strange places where countries decide to to put up a a, a consulate so basically um if you if you go on wikipedia you can do either list of diplomatic missions in and then the name of the country or list of diplomatic missions off the the second recommendation uh this is a, a netflix movie that i saw recently it's called the wasp network and it's has to do with the uh with the insect not the uh, not the acronym uh and it's 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 based on a true story uh the 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 wasp network uh was a cuban espionage ring based in in south florida that had the the objective of 
um, keeping track of, of the activities of anti-Castro groups in, in South Florida. I, I do follow uh, Cuban affairs um, a, a little bit. So I was aware of the existence of the network. And there's certainly things that have been uh, written about it. I mean, this was um, for, for many years, the, the release of the captured spies was, it was a bit of a, of a battle cry for, for, for the Cuban government, but this movie, it's, it's really well done. So if you want to, to, to learn about this particular episode in a more entertaining way than, you know, a Cuban propaganda or, or some obscure, uh, uh, account of what happened. This is really the way to do it, or at least to to sort of get the uh, the basic idea. Um, really good acting, uh, just just really really well done movie. So uh, and very entertaining. So the Wasp Network available on Netflix, and and those are my recommendations. Um, Miles, uh, thank you once again for for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed it. Really interesting. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure that this is going to be uh, an episode that will be well received by our audience because it it, it really um, uh, it's it's really what we what we aimed for uh, when we had this idea uh, to to set up this podcast right to really go in depth and and start uh, looking at at different things and from slightly different angles and 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 benefiting from the expertise of, of people like yourself. So thank you once again uh, for for being on the on the podcast. Happy to do it. And thanks for doing it. I think it's easy for all of us to get very superficial in, in our in our knowledge and understanding and the ability to, to go a little bit deeper is a really good service to all of us who are listening. So thank you for doing it and for the opportunity. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.